Shavua Tov, Chavarim. This is John Parsons with Hebrew for Christians. And I'm here to wish you Shavua Tov, B'Shem Yeshua Mashikhenu, a good week in Yeshua, our Messiah, blessed be He. May this be a wonderful week for you as you seek to know the truth of God and to honor the Lord God of Israel in your Avodat Halev, your service of heart, as you show yourself approved before God in the study and love of His Torah, His Word, His Revelation, especially in our beloved Yeshua the Messiah. As the Lord said to Yehoshua, This book of the law, Sefer HaTorah Hazeh, shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night. That means chew on it, keep feeding on it, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein, for then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have hatzlacha, you shall have good success. This is from Yoshua 1 verse 8. So I committed that to memory years ago. I love that verse. So keep meditating and studying the scriptures. That verse continues, by the way, it says, Have not I commanded thee, be strong and of good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. For the Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. What a great promise. And that's one of the names of God that I've realized after studying the names for years and years, that I am with thee. Imcha'ani is the name of God, as well as the great Ehyeh, Asher Ehyeh, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be, and some of the other names of God that we read in Scripture. One of the most intimate and endearing and powerful is, I am with thee. As we read in Isaiah 41.10, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Al-Tiraki And then it goes on, Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Commit that one to memory, friends. That's a fantastic, wonderful verse. Very comforting, very strengthening. I encourage you to put that in your heart and chew on it and keep that within you as you connect to God. As you obey his commandments, the word commandment again means to connect to God. So may God help you do that wherever you go. So praise his great name. Wherever you go, in whatever circumstance you find yourself, Praise his great name, even in the midst of afflictions and trials, friends. It's written by James the Righteous. Friends, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations or trials. The testing of your faith is precious to God. If you can't detect God in your circumstances, then you are required to trust his heart. Gamzu letova. This too is for the good. Whenever I'm confused about life, which is often... I try to remember what God said to Moses after the tragic sin of the golden calf, which we read about last week in Parshat Kitisa. He said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name, the Lord. That's yud heh And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. That's from Exodus 33:19. God's character does not change. The Lord is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The meaning of the name, however, cannot be known apart from understanding the need of your heart. Therefore, what do we really need in our hearts? We need peace, don't we? And we need forgiveness. We need forgiveness with God. We need peace within ourselves. And then from that would come peace and love for other people. So we need healing. We need a deep, deep cleansing and healing from heaven so that we can walk with God in the truth. And that comes through the cross. There's no other way. I know that's not politically correct to say, but the cross of Messiah is the centerpiece. As Paul said, I've decided to know nothing among you except Messiah and him crucified. And that's from the book of Galatians. So the cross is central to our faith because it represents the intersection of heaven and earth. It represents our frailty and God's power. It represents both God's truth and the facts of reality as well as his compassion, which overrules those and redeems those facts. So the cross is central. The blood of Yeshua is essential. That is the shedding out of God's heart. It's the manifestation, if you will, of God's desire and love for us all. So take hold of that, friends. It's written, forgive us as we forgive. This is Yeshua in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, forgive us of our debts as we forgive others, which means that our forgiveness of others, including ourselves, is the measure of our own state of forgiveness. For with the same measure you use, it will be measured back to you, it says in Luke 6.38. This is the great like-for-like principle of the spiritual life. As you give, so you will be given. As you withhold, so you will be withheld. Look at Psalm 18, 
25 through 27. If we cling to resentment, anger, bitterness, or desire for revenge, we appeal to principles of justice that alienate us from reconciliation with others. But if we intend to have God be the judge of others, we thereby appeal to him to be our judge as well. If we merely hear this truth but fail to practice it, we're like someone who looks at their face in the mirror but soon forgets what manner of person he was. and That is, by overlooking the truth about his inward condition. That's from James 1, 22 and 24. Just as someone who looks in the mirror but forgets the impression of what they see, so someone who merely hears the word soon forgets its point. Hear the end of the verse, that is, listen to know how we must practice our faith. And just as grace is inaccessible for someone who refuses to be honest with himself, so is forgiveness. If a person refuses to confess the truth about his condition, salvation itself is impossible since God literally cannot save the soul that denies its need for him. We must accept others as we accept ourselves as broken people who are redeemed and loved by God. There are no exceptions to this life-for-life life principle of the Spirit. Forgive us of our sins as we forgive everyone who is indebted to us. That's Luke 11.4. Note the phrase, everyone who is indebted. The Lord likens our sin to a debt owed to him. Some things never ought to have been done, but when they are done, they are stolen from God by abusing his sustaining energy and resources. When we sin, God enables us to do so at his expense, so to speak, though this is a debt owed to him as the master of the universe and glory. May the Lord help each of us let go and be free of those things that ensnare us through offense. Sometimes my children, my boys, I have three of them, uh, fight among themselves. And when they do, I like to remind them that when they're being mean-spirited or cruel even, they're hurting themselves. And that's so true, isn't it? Sin ultimately harms ourselves. Where it says, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, that is a warning to your own soul not to pollute or defile yourself through speech acts or other types of acts that lead to pain. And primarily that pain in this case is referring to your own inner life. You don't want a painful life, do you? An inner life of pain? Then forgive. Let go. Relax. Breathe in God's love. Let go of anybody who's harmed you for your own sake. That's what forgiveness means. It means giving away what was given to you, perhaps unjustly in the case of a sin, but you give it back. You, you, you give it away and you don't hold on to it any longer. May it be thy will, O Lord, our God and God of our fathers, to remove all barriers between us and to endow us with the vision to see the good in all people, including ourselves, and to graciously overlook their defects and sins. Amen. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there's hatred, let me sow love. Where there's injury, help me sow pardon. Where there's doubt, Help me show faith. Where there's despair, help me give hope. Where there's darkness, help my light shine. Where there's sadness, let me bring joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it's in giving that we receive, it's in pardoning that we are pardoned, it's in dying that we are born again to eternal life. That's a quote attributed to Francis of Assisi, and regardless of its origin, it's beautiful. Another great prayer of unknown origin is this one. Lord, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of myself, that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties, that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy love, thy power, and thy way of life. That is sometimes heard in AA meetings, but it's an anonymous prayer. It's beautiful, and it's truly biblical. So let's say amen to that as well. Now, before we get into our Torah reading for this week, I want to bring up some issues of the Hebrew calendar and where we're at. We just celebrated the holiday, the festive holiday of Purim, where we celebrate divine comeuppance, the ironic retribution that comes upon the wicked as they hate the Jewish people and abhor the Lord God of Israel and how that story is played out in the book of Esther and Haman is hung on the noose of his own self-hatred ultimately and that should be a message that we take away from that book among others. The scriptures state however that the holiday of Purim should be remembered and kept through every generation, every family, every province and every city and that the days of Purim should not fail from among the Jews nor the memorial of them perish from their seed 
That's from Esther 9.28. Now, according to Jewish tradition, we remember the miracles of Purim by means of four mitzvot, or blessings. First, honoring the appointed time, as directed by the scripture I just read. Second, performing acts of tzedakah, or kindness, gemilut chasadim. In addition to giving charity, in Jewish tradition, it's customary to do mishloach manot, which is giving gifts to friends or goodies to friends, like making a basket of hamantashen or putting some toys for little children in a basket and giving it to a family in need. That's another beautiful custom of the holiday. A third mitzvot is to just simply hear the story of Esther read, Megillat Esther. And that involves oftentimes a permspiel where we put on a play or act out the parts and have dress up in costume. It's a lot of fun. What we do as a family thing is we read from the book of Esther. We take turns reading and we're dressed up in costume. And sometimes in critical moments, we'll have the kids act out the parts like when Haman is taken away to the gallows and so on. It's a lot of fun. And of course, we do the stomping of feet and whistling and shaking our groggers and so on, whatever the name Haman is mentioned and we cheer and say hooray whenever we hear the word esther or mordechai so it's a lot of fun and uh, so we make we make it really simple some people have elaborate plays or they go to a community center and watch a play that's great this is our way of doing it we think it's simple we just read the whole book of esther it doesn't take long dress up in costume have some special food it's a lot of fun and i'm sure you'll be blessed if you do it and four enjoying a special Purim meal together and that includes saying Kedush and the Yom Tov blessing and Hamotzi. And we add the Shema, we recite Shema, and then do the priestly blessing as well, Birkat Kohanim. We tie that in. We make it like a Sabbath service for us during our Purim meal. Now the Midrash Esther says that Purim, unlike other holidays, will be celebrated even after the final redemption, after the end of days. Maimonides says the Book of Esther will enjoy the same status as the Torah of Moses in the world to come, that's from Mishnah Torah. This is because of the story of Purim itself, that God's covenantal faithfulness and his defense of his people is to be magnified in the deliverance that leads to the establishment of the Messianic kingdom on the earth. And indeed, the second coming of Yeshua will be regarded as the final fulfillment of Purim. Look at Revelation 19, 11 through 16. Again, the theme of the holiday of Purim is the providential survival of God's people despite various attempts by their enemies to destroy them. As such, Purim, like Passover, which is coming up, by the way, is a celebration of the deliverance and faithfulness of the Lord God of Israel. The terrible irony of the anti-Semite is that he hangs himself using his own rope, as I mentioned earlier. The tragic character of Haman represents the biblical archetype of all those who refuse to acknowledge God's faithful love for his people. Now, on the Torah's calendar, both the last month of the year, which is Adar, or in case of leap years, Adar too, but I won't get into that. The last month is Adar, and the first month is Nisan. And both of these center on the theme of God's salvation. In Adar, we celebrate Purim, and 30 days later, exactly, under the full moon of Nisan 15, we celebrate Passover. However, Purim, unlike Passover, celebrates the hiddenness of God's action, there's no dramatic power encounters, there's no parting of the Red Sea, no cataclysmic judgments in the story of Purim. And that's suggested by the name of the book of Esther itself, which is Megillat Esther in Hebrew. And the word Megillah, scroll, is related to the Hebrew word Gelui, which means revelation. Just as the name Esther is related to the word Hester, meaning hiddenness. So the phrase Hester Panim means hiding of face. It's often used when discussing the role of God in the book of Esther. God's plan is being fulfilled step by step, even if it's hidden within the natural world of human beings and their choices. Look at Jeremiah 10.23 and Proverbs 21.1. At bottom, Purim is all about God's irrepressible, undefeatable, insuperable, and sovereign love for his people. Though the wicked seem to sometimes have the upper hand in this world, we're not going to fret or become anxious, friends. God's in control and his love and purposes overrule and overmaster the counsel of the wicked. He will one day speak to the princes of this dark world in his wrath and fury. And look at Psalm 2, verse 5. God's great vision for Zion, the city of the great king, as Yeshua said, will never fail, nor will his love for those who are trusting in him. God's sovereign love is our great hope, and it is the truth. For more on the see Theology, Paradox, and Purim on the Hebrew for Christians website. Now, this week's Torah reading, it's called Vayakel Pekudeh, I'll talk about that in a minute, is 
always read during the time leading up to Passover. And the Sabbath that immediately follows the holiday of Purim is called Shabbat Parah, or the Sabbath of the Red Cow. In Hebrew, Red Cow is Parah Adumah. And this is when we read in the Torah an additional reading called Maftir about the special sacrifice of the mysterious red heifer. This is in the book of Numbers 19.1 through 22. The sages decided to recite the laws of the red heifer at this time to recall the remedy of the sin of the golden calf mentioned in our Torah portion for last week and to remind the people to purify themselves before coming to Jerusalem for the great pilgrimage festival of Passover. It's thought that since sprinkling of the waters of separation cleanses from the uncleanness of death, the reading of this portion would help prepare our hearts for the time of Passover when we celebrate God's deliverance from death. I've written quite a bit about the red heifer sacrifice on the Hebrew for Christians website, so I encourage you to take a look there when you get some time. But the red heifer offering is considered a paradox to many Jewish thinkers, though it can also be seen as a revelation of Yeshua, of course. The paradox is that the one who offers the sacrifice becomes unclean or impure, while the sprinkling of the ashes is used to make the people clean. The ritual is considered chok within the Jewish tradition. That means it makes no rational sense. It's not intended to. It's a decree or fiat. The Talmud states that all the 613 commandments given in Torah, Tariag, Mitzvot, even King Solomon with all his wisdom couldn't fathom this one. However, the sacrifice of Yeshua the Messiah can be understood as the fulfillment of the symbolism of the Red heifer, the parad, as it's called. Both were entirely rare and without defect. Both were sacrificed outside the camp. Both made the one who offered the sacrifice unclean, but the one who was sprinkled by it clean. And finally, both sacrifices cleansed people for priestly service. Unlike the other sacrifices offered at the altar, the para adumar, the red heifer, was taken outside the camp and there slaughtered before the priest who took some of its blood and sprinkled it seven times before the Mishkan, thereby designating it as a purification offering. And during the second temple period, by the way, the high priest performed the ceremony while facing the temple atop the Mount of Olives. Then the red heifer would be burned in its entirety. Its flesh, its hide, blood, and even its dung were to be burned, unlike other Levitical sacrifices we read about. So unlike all the other sacrifices, all the blood of the sacrifice was also to be burned in the fire. That's very unusual. Hyssop, scarlet yarn, and a cedar stick would then be thrown upon the burning red heifer. And note that these are the very same items used to cleanse from sarat, or skin disease, sometimes mistranslated as leprosy in our Bibles. In other words, the blood was assimilated into the ashes of sacrifice, which then were gathered and mixed with water to create the water of separation, nida, for the Israelite community. Note that the word separation here, nida, refers to menstrual impurity and hearkens to Zechariah 13, verse 1, On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and from nidah. In a sense, nidah can be connected with original sin, the uncleanness of original sin, since it's linked with birth, of course, and the cycle of birth and death, and the curse of Adam, the original forebearer of the federal head of humanity. And so we see that there is a need to be cleansed from this deeper uncleanness called spiritual death. And that's where the work of Yeshua as the second Adam, the new federal head of humanity, delivers us from that and causes a regeneration to occur. A lot more can be said about the red heifer. And I encourage you to go to the Hebrew for Christians website and look for the Gospel of the Red Cow article and some other things, including Parshat Chukat. However, according to Jewish tradition, note that the red heifer sacrifice was given to atone for the sin of the golden calf, though the Torah itself does not make this association. The Lord Yeshua, our high priest of the new covenant, however, is the perfect fulfillment of the red heifer, para aduma, since he was completely without sin or defect, 2 Corinthians 5.21, John 8.46. He was sacrificed outside the camp, look at Hebrews 13.13. 13. He made himself sin for us, 2 Corinthians 5.21. His sprinkling makes us clean. Look at 1 Peter 1.2, Hebrews 12.24, Revelation 1.5. And the water of separation that his sacrifice created is the means by which we are made clean from the impurity of sin and especially spiritual death. Look at Ephesians 5.25 and 6, Hebrews 10.22. So again, I bring this up because this is Shabbat Parah or the 
Sabbath of the Red Heifer. And it, it is called that because of the account of the sin of the golden calf from last week's Torah reading. And coincidentally, the sages link that with the idea of being purified for the coming Passover, Pesach. That's why I brought it up, and I hope you find it useful. But let's now move on to our Torah reading for this week. So let me begin by giving an executive summary of our Torah for this week, and then we'll move into some details after that. This week we have what's called a double portion of Torah. It's Parshat Vayakel Pekudei. Those are two different Torah portions. The first is Vayakel, and the second is Pekudei. And we run those two words together when we have a double portion and call it Vayakel Pekudei. Much of this material is repeated from earlier portions in the book of Shemot, or Exodus, regarding the tabernacle or the Mishkan. And this, I think, underscores the importance both of the sacrificial system, namely the altar, and the necessity for blood atonement to be made right with God, and to pretend the two advents of the Messiah Yeshua. So the two accounts of the Mishkan given in the book of Shemot, or Exodus, represent the two advents of Messiah. First, Yeshua as Mashiach ben Yosef, our suffering servant, the Lamb of God. And secondly, as Messiah ben David, the conquering Lord who will establish the altar in New Jerusalem. At any rate, note that God commanded Moses to assemble or erect or set up the tabernacle on the first month in the second year from the date of the Exodus on the first day of the month. Now that's called Nisan 1 or Rosh Chodeshim. The new moon of Nisan then marks the beginning of the month of redemption. In fact, it's called Chodesh Yeshua in Jewish tradition, both regarding the exodus from Egypt, that's the establishment of the altar at the tabernacle, as well as the greater exodus given through the altar of Messiah, as spiritually foretold by this. So I hope you're catching that point. This is very significant. It's all prophetically pointing to Yeshua, the Lamb of God. Indeed, once the Mishkan was completed and all its components were accounted for and inspected, Moses assembled it and anointed all its components with the sacred anointing oil called Shemen HaMishka. And that word Mishka comes from the same root as Messiah, Mashiach, indicating that the Mishkan would foreshadow God's plan of redemption given in Yeshua. Moses then formally initiates Aaron and his four sons into the priesthood, marking their hands and feet with sacrificial blood, and, quote, waving them before the Lord to picture the resurrection. The divine presence, manifest as the Shekinah cloud of glory, then fills the Holy of Holies in the Mishkan, a tent of meeting in the Mishkan. And the book of Exodus ends, and Moses was not able to enter into the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the Mishkan. Throughout all their journeys, wherever the cloud was taken up over the Mishkan, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the Mishkan by day, and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their generations. That's Exodus 30, 35 through 38. So the presence of the glory of God that descended from Sinai upon the newly dedicated Mishkan represents the climactic moment for the fledgling nation of Israel, since the sin of the golden calf had jeopardized whether God would indeed dwell in the midst of the people of Israel. Recall that it was only after Moses had returned from Sinai bearing the second set of tablets on what's later called Yom Kippur that the glow of the Lord's redeeming love radiated from his face and new hope was given to Israel. This is prefiguring the new covenant. The king of glory would accompany the people from Sinai to the promised land. That's how the book of Exodus actually ends. And the narrative will then continue or pick up in the book of Numbers, beginning exactly a month after the Mishkan was assembled. So that's a very high-level executive summary of, of our Torah reading for this week. In our Bibles, you can find Parshat Vayakel Pekudeh, beginning with Exodus 35, chapter 35, verse 1, running through the end of the book of Exodus, namely Exodus 40, verse 38. So now let's take a moment to recite the Hebrew blessing before we think more and study more of our Torah friends. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech ha'olam, asher kirishanu b'mitzvotav v'tzivanu la'asok b'divrei Torah. Blessed are you, eternal one, our God, king over all, who sets us apart by his love 
and who wants us to be soaked up in the words of Torah. Amen, amen, amen. Now, before I go any further, let me just say that I'm going to have to do a bit of an abbreviated Torah study on the actual text here this week because there is a lot of redundancy, number one, that I've covered in previous Torah studies that you can read or listen to online. And so I don't need to necessarily go through all the details again here. And secondly, because this is a lengthier Torah portion, being a double portion, uh, we're going to have a lot less time here to go through the text verse by verse. However, I am going to try to hit the salient content and connect it with previous Torah readings where appropriate and give insight when I can. And hopefully by the end of this broadcast, you'll have a good idea of what these final two Torah portions from the book of Exodus are about and how they fit together with the rest of the Torah and, of course, the greater council of Scripture throughout, including the revelation of the New Testament and Yeshua, our beloved Messiah. So let's get started. As is my custom, I like to contextualize what we read, so I'm going to just take a minute or two here to review again the great story of the book of Exodus so that we have a better idea of what's happening and the context in which it is happening. We're nearing the end of the book of Exodus and the story of how the people of Israel were delivered by God's hand during the great Passover redemption, and then were led into the desert to receive the Torah from the Lord. The written Torah says that at the beginning of the third month, that's Sivan 1, the people reached Mount Sinai and set up camp. Moses then gathered the people together and asked them whether they were willing to enter into covenant with the Lord and to keep his commandments. When the people replied, Kol All that the Lord has said we will do and obey. Moses offered sacrifices and told the people to prepare for the great revelation of God to come in three days. Then on Sivan 6th, exactly seven weeks after the exodus from Egypt, that's 49 days after the great Passover, the Lord descended upon the mountain with fire, smoke, shofar blast, and a great earthquake as the Ten Commandments were uttered, an event we recall every year during the holiday of Shavuot, what we call weeks, or Christians call Pentecost, and that commemorates the great revelation of God given both at Sinai and later at Zion after the time of Yeshua's resurrection, see Acts chapters 1 and 2. After the revelation of the Ten Commandments, God called Moses up to Sinai again, this time for 40 days and nights, to teach him the details of the commandments and how they were to be applied. When he descended and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the mishpatim, or rules, they answered with one voice and said, again, all that the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. Moses then wrote down all the words of the Lord, and he rose early in the morning, built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel, and then he offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings to the Lord. Moses took half the blood, put it in the basins, and half of the blood he threw on the altar, and then he took the book of the covenant, Sefer Habrit, and read it in the hearing of the people. And again, collectively, they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will obey. Upon hearing this, Moses then took the blood that was in the basis and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and the seventy elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel and they ate a covenant ratification meal to celebrate the agreement between Israel and the Lord. After this, they all descended the mountain, but Moses was called back up to receive the Ten Commandments inscribed on tablets of stone and to receive further revelation from God. So Moses went back up the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain and the glory of the Lord dwelt on Sinai and the cloud covered it six days and on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud and Moses entered the cloud and went further up and he was there 40 days and 40 nights receiving a great vision of the special sanctuary or shrine called the Mishkan or tabernacle that was to represent God's presence among the people as they journeyed through the desert on their way to the promised land. In this connection, it's important to remember that God showed Moses the pattern, tabnit, according to which the tabernacle and its furnishings were to be made. First, the Ark of the Covenant and its cover called the Kaporet would occupy an inner chamber called the Holy of Holies. Within an adjoining chamber called the Holy Place, a table would hold 12 loaves of matzah and a seven-branched menorah or candlestick that illuminated the tent. The Lord gave precise dimensions of the tent with the added instruction to separate the Holy of Holies by a special veil called the parochet. The entire tent was to have a wooden frame and cross beams covered by 
colored fabric and the hide of rams and goats. Outside the tent, an outer court was defined and measured. That would include a copper sacrificial altar and a special water basin called the kior. The outer tent was to be enclosed by a fence made with fine linen on silver poles with hooks of silver and sockets of brass and a special screen and ornamental fabric made an entryway into the Mishkan itself. Moses then told the Israelites to bring the purest olive oil for the lamps of the menorah, which the priests were to kindle every day in the holy place. Next, God commanded Moses to ordain Aaron and his sons as priests and describe their garments they would wear while serving in the tabernacle. All priests were to wear four garments, linen breeches, tunics, sashes, and turbans, but in addition to these, the Kohen Gador high priest was to wear a special blue robe decorated with pomegranates and golden bells. Over this robe, an ephod, that is an apron woven of gold, purple, and blue and crimson, was to be worn, and upon the ephod was attached a breastplate inlaid with precious stones inscribed with the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. Finally, the high priest would wear a golden plate called a seats, engraved with the words, Holy to the Lord, upon the front of his turban. The Lord told Moses the priests should be ordained in a special seven-day ceremony that involved washing, dressing, and anointing them with oil mixed with blood, followed by the offering of special sacrifices. The priests were further instructed to present burnt offerings twice a day on the altar. This is called the Korban Tamid, of course, that I've mentioned before. And a golden altar upon which incense was to be offered twice a day by the priests when the menorah lamps were serviced as described. So in last week's Torah portion now, we're catching up here, God commanded all the Israelites over the age of 20 to pay a half-shekel tax to help support the service within the Mishkan. After this tax was explained, God described some additional elements that would be required for the priestly service at the sanctuary, the copper washstand, the sacred anointing oil, and incense for the golden altar and the holy place are described. The Lord then named a man called Betzalel, who was filled with the Spirit of God to be the chief architect of the Mishkan. As I mentioned in last week's Torah study, Betzalel is clearly a figure of Yeshua, our Messiah, the builder of the house. See Kitisa for more information about that. Now before the construction would begin, however, the Lord reminded Moses to warn the people to be careful to observe the Sabbath day. Immediately following this admonition, God gave Moses the tablets of the Ten Commandments, which were inscribed directly by the hand of God. Now note that all that is described while Moses is up upon the mountain it has not yet been actuated or constructed yet. It's part of the vision that he's been given and will later be communicated to people. But at this point, all that's been mentioned before in Parshat Truma and Tetzaveh and last week's Torah portion Kitisa is still yet future since the construction of the tabernacle had not yet begun. Now all this was interrupted by the terrible sin of the golden calf. Before Moses returned to the camp, receiving this great vision, the people had talked Aaron into making an idol, which they began to worship. God told Moses of their treachery while he was up on the mountain and threatened to destroy them. But Moses interceded on behalf of the Israelites. As he rushed down the mountain with the tablets in hand, he saw the people dancing about the idol and smashed the tablets in anger. Moses then destroyed the idol and led the Levites into slaying 3,000 of the ringleaders of the rebellion. The following day, Moses returned back up the mountain and begged God to reaffirm the covenant. After a 40-day period of intercession and repentance, the Lord finally told Moses to carve a second set of tablets and to meet him at the summit of Sinai where he would show Moses his glory and reveal to him the meaning of his name, yud heh After this dramatic encounter, God reaffirmed the covenant along with all its ritual and ethical implications. For more on this, see Shalosh Esrei Midot in my discussion on Parshat Kitisa, the audio broadcast Shavua Tov or Parshat Kitisa. When the people finally saw Moses coming down the mountain with the second set of tablets, they understood they were forgiven and that the covenant had been renewed. And when they approached Moses, however, they drew back in fear because his face was radiant with the glory of God. Moses reassured them, however, that all that the Lord had commanded while he was on the mountain was still going to be in effect. And when he had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. And from that time on, Moses wore the veil, though he removed it whenever he went before the Lord to hear from him. Now, according to Jewish tradition, Moses descended from Sinai with the second set of tablets on Yom Kippur, as I've mentioned before. And on the following morning, he convened the people to explain God's instruction regarding the building of the tabernacle. 
Before he did this, however, he again reminded them to observe the Sabbath as a complete day of rest and added the proviso that they may not kindle any fire on this day. Moses then asked for contributions, truma, of gold and silver and so on, to build the sanctuary and its furnishings. This was a free will offering made by those whose heart so moved them. And as a sign of complete teshuva, the people kept giving until Moses finally had to ask them to stop. Betzalel and Elholiav were appointed to be the chief artisans of the Mishkan, as already mentioned, but this time now in front of the people. And they led a team of others that created the roof coverings, the frame, wall panels, foundational sockets, and so on for the tent. They created the parochet, that's the veil, that separated the holy place HaKodesh from the Holy of Holies, Kodesh HaKodeshim. Both the roof and the veil were designed with embroidered cherubim, winged angelic, angelic beings, and Betzalel created the Ark of the Covenant, and its cover called the Mercy Seder Kaporet, which was the sole object that would occupy the innermost chamber of the Holy of Holies. Betzalel also made three sacred furnishings for the holy place, the table of bread, the shulchan, the candelabra, the lamp and menorah, and the altar of incense, Mizbeach HaKatorit, as well as the anointing oil that would consecrate all the furnishings. Betzalel then created the copper or bronze altar for the burnt offerings along with its implements and the copper basin, Made from the mirrors of women who ministered in the entrance of the tent of meeting, he then formed the courtyard by installing the hangings, posts, and foundation sockets and created the three-colored gate that was used to access the courtyard. After this, Moses recorded the inventory, this is Parshat Pekudeh, of the building materials and furnishings, and then he carefully checked the special priestly garments that were made. After all the work was confirmed to be in complete accordance with God's instructions, Moses blessed the people. The Lord then commanded Moses to assemble the Mishkan on the first month in the second year from the date of the Exodus, on the first day of the month. That's Nisan 1, or what's called Rosh Chodeshim. See the Hebrew for Christians website on that. I have a lot of information about Rosh Chodeshim. Since Moses gave the commandment to begin building the tabernacle on the day after Yom Kippur, that's Tishri 11, this implies that it took less than six months for Betzalel and his team to create the tabernacle and its furnishings, which is quite an impressive task if you think about it. After the Mishkan was complete and all its components were counted for and inspected, Moses then assembled it and anointed its components with the holy anointing oil. He then formally initiated Aaron and his four sons into the priesthood. The divine presence, the Shekinah manifest glory of cloud, filled the Holy of Holies and the Tent of Meeting. And the book of Exodus ends, quote, And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the clouds settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the Mishkan. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up over the Mishkan, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud would not be taken up, they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the Mishkan day by day, and the fire was in it by night by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys." That is from Exodus 40, verses 35 through 38. So it's fascinating, isn't it, that the Mishkan was consecrated and assembled and ready for divine service on Nisan 1, which was the very date that Moses was shown the new moon and told that it was Chodesh Yeshua, the month of redemption leading up to the great Passover in Egypt. Remember, the revelation of the burning bush was given at this time too. And then, of course, it took a year in Egypt for the plagues to be fulfilled. All this culminating at the Sinai revelation and the vision of the altar. And then exactly one year after the anniversary of the Exodus, on the San Juan, the tabernacle is set up and ready to go. It's also telling and significant that every day, every evening and morning, a lamb, a defect-free lamb, was to be offered with bread and wine on the copper altar, the altar of sacrifice at the Mishkan, again commemorating the Passover from Egypt, the blood of a lamb that was slain, and foretelling the coming of the great Lamb of God, Yeshua, our Savior and our Healer. Now instead of going line by line through the two Torah portions this week, I just want to give some concluding remarks about the book of Exodus, Sefer Shemot, and think about some of its themes and meta-themes of the story. To kind of put some closure on it as we make our way to the heart of the Torah, which is the book of Leviticus. And the heart of the book of Leviticus is the blood that is placed upon the altar for the atonement of our sins, represented again by the Yom Kippur Avodah. And that 
is a echo of the restoration of the covenant and the sacrificial blood to be placed on the kaporet over the broken tablets. So that's where the Torah is leading to, the idea of blood atonement, sacrificial blood atonement for the remission of sin and the cleansing of people, spiritually speaking, from spiritual death, which is the real ailment. We get confused sometimes. We think sin is what separates us from God. But sin is actually a byproduct of a deeper problem, which is spiritual death that resulted from the original transgression from Adam and Eve that we inherited through our fallen human nature. So Yeshua gives us healing from that. It's through his sacrificial substitutionary death for us that we are imputed a righteousness, an alien, quote-unquote, form of righteousness, a forensic righteousness given to us by faith as we trust in the divine exchange, the Semecha principle of faith, where we lean into him and take hold of what he has done for us on our behalf, and he then imparts to us redemption and new life. In light of this, it's highly significant for us as believers in Messiah to understand the nature of the cross and our redemption, the atonement, the idea of substitutionary atonement, the whole concept of how a sin can be exchanged for righteousness by faith and so on. These are all factors and themes that come into this week's Torah as we conclude the book of Exodus or Sefer Shemot, which is a prelude to the great book of Leviticus or Sefer Vayikra, which explains in far more detail the nature of blood atonement and its significance for us as believers in Messiah. Amen. Chazak, chazak, venid chazak. Be strong, be strong. Let us be strengthened. Now for more information about this week's Torah reading, Vayakel Pekude, please see the Hebrew for Christians website and please review Parshat Truma, Tetzaveh, and Kitisa, where a lot of this material is covered in a lot more detail, and that will help better inform your understanding of this if you're having any questions about some of the furnishings in the tabernacle and so on. It's all very clearly described in those portions, so again, no need to repeat that here, but I do want to mention a few things that I think will be of further relevance to us. For example, regarding the wash basin, or the kior as it's called in Hebrew, at the entrance of the tabernacle or the Mishkan, a copper labor was built, a place where we wash and prepare ourselves to come before the divine presence. This is from Exodus 30, verse 18 from last week's Torah, Parshat Kitisa. The Torah says that the basin was made from the mirrors of women who offered them to help build the sanctuary. That's mentioned in Exodus 38, verse 8 from this week's Torah reading. As spiritually understood, the mirror was transformed from a place where we encounter our own appearance to a place where we encounter God. Instead of focusing on our superficial face, how it looks and how we esteem ourselves, we now see ourselves in light of God's love with our former self-image sacrificed, if you will, or surrendered for the gift of a deeper self. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.16. This is the new self cleansed by the word of God, reflecting back the radiance of his presence as it says, put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness in Ephesians 4.24. The sacrificed mirror represents turning to face reality to see ourselves as God sees us. Because of Yeshua, we have access to the inner heart of God, as it says in Hebrews 4.16. Know who you are in Messiah. It says this in our scriptures. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 3.18 as we lose sight of ourselves, if we quit talking about ourselves, deny ourselves, that's what it means in Greek, quit talking about ourselves, we are being transformed by faith into the greater glory of God. And that is an imperceptible process. I believe it's mostly unconscious where the Lord does his work in us so that we can begin to shine back his light more accurately and truly. The beginning and the end, friends. The final portion of the book of Exodus, that is Pekude provides details about the construction of the tabernacle or Mishkan, its furnishings, as well as the special clothing of the priests. At the end of the portion, we read this, Vaychal Moshe et Hamalacha, which is Moses finished all the work. That's from Exodus 40:33. That phrase has the same gematria or numerical value as the Hebrew word breshit in the beginning, the very first word of the Torah in Genesis 1.1. The sages say this suggests that the very creation of the universe was for the sake of the building of the tabernacle and by extension for the sake of the sacrificial love of God to be demonstrated to all of creation. The Talmud says all the world was created for the Messiah, Sanhedrin 98b, 
And indeed, Yeshua is called the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world in the New Testament. Look at Revelation 13, 8, 1 Peter 1, 18 through 20, Ephesians 4, uh, 1, 4, and 2 Timothy 1, 9. All things were created by Yeshua and for him. And in him all things consist or stick together, as it says in Colossians 1, 16, 17. Creation therefore begins and ends with the redemptive love of God as manifested in the person of Yeshua, our Messiah, the great Lamb of God. He is the center of creation, the Aleph and Tav, the beginning and the end, as it says in Isaiah 44, 6 and Revelation 1, 17. Some of the Jewish sages have said that the seal of God is truth, since the final letters of the three words that conclude the account of creation, Elohim Lasot, in Genesis 2, verse 3, translated God created to do, spell the word for truth, or emet. The idea is that God created the world to do, and that he finished all the work of creation and redemption after the sixth day, which is another way of saying that Yeshua is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. All was created for Messiah. Salvation is not an afterthought or plan B of God's purpose for creation. Before Abraham was, I am. Our Lord Yeshua is always the way, the truth, and the life for us. The exodus from Egypt is perhaps the most fundamental event of Jewish history. It's the miracle of the Torah. In addition to being commemorated every year during Pesach or Passover, look at Exodus 12, 24 through 27, Numbers 9, 2 and 3, and Deuteronomy 16, 1. It's explicitly mentioned in the first of the Ten Commandments. Look at Exodus 20, verse 2. And it's recalled every Sabbath day. Look at Deuteronomy 5, 12 through 15. The festivals of Pentecost or Shavuot and Tabernacles or Sukkot likewise derive from it. The former recalls the giving of Torah Sinai and the latter recalls God's care of the Exodus generation while they journeyed from Egypt to the Promised Land. As does the season of Teshuvah, repentance that culminates in Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Indeed, nearly every commandment of Torah, including the laws of the Mishkan and the sacrificial system, are traced back to the story of the Exodus and Passover. And in some ways, the entire Bible is an extended interpretation of its significance. For more on that, see the article, The Gospel in the Garden, on the Hebrew for Christians website. Most important of all, the Exodus both prefigures and exemplifies the work of redemption given through the sacrificial life of Yeshua, the King of the Jews, and the Blessed Lamb of God. Spiritually speaking, the Exodus from Egypt is the central parable of Torah. The bondage of the Israelites to Pharaoh represents humanity's slavery to sin and death. God's deliverance from bondage is affected by trusting in the blood of the sacrificial Lamb of God. The passage from death to life symbolically comes through baptism into the Sea of Reeds. The journey to truth represents the pilgrimage to Sinai, and so on. Indeed, the redemption in Egypt led directly to Revelation at Sinai. And when the Lord God gave the Ten Commandments, he didn't begin by saying he was our creator, but rather our redeemer. I am the Lord your God, Anochi Adonai Eleheka, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, Exodus 20, verse 2. This is because, again, the purpose of creation is to demonstrate God's redemptive love and to be known as our Savior and Redeemer, just as Yeshua is the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. The deeper meaning of exile concerns awareness of the divine presence. The worst kind of exile is not to know that you're away from home. Now, this is a real paradox. In other words, you're in exile if you are awake to the spiritual reality and you're not in exile if you're asleep. Of course, if you're in exile, then you're with the Lord who himself is in exile. The Shekinah is in exile from this world. And on the other hand, if you're at home in this world, then you are an enemy of God because God is not a part of this world. And so we are in this two-tiered reality. We are in a place of crossing over and our redemption is not yet complete. It's an already not yet state of affairs. And yet we are in a place of homesickness, walking toward the heavenly city, keeping our eyes on the goal, which is salvation completed in Yeshua the Messiah, blessed be he. But this is why Egypt or Mitzrayim is called Metzaryam, a narrow strait, a place of bondage. It represents bondage and death in this world, and the Exodus represents salvation and freedom. God splits the sea, and we cross over from death to life. Since Torah represents awareness of God's truth, Israel was led into a place of difficulty to learn and receive revelation. Look at Genesis 46, 1-7. 
Out of the depths of darkness, God's voice would call his people forth. Likewise, we understand our, quote, blessed fault, the trouble that moves us to cry out to God for salvation in Yeshua. The theme of the book of Exodus essentially turns on two great events, namely the deliverance of the people from their bondage in Egypt, Yetziat Mitzrayim, and the subsequent revelation given at Sinai, Matan Torah. This implies, of course, that our redemption leads to enlightenment and revelation. Both of these events, however, are grounded in the deeper theme of God's faithful love combined with the need for blood atonement. With regard to the former, the blood of the Passover lamb was required to cause death to pass over the houses of the Israelites. With regard to the latter, the sacrificial system, the Mishkan, was required to draw near to God. Now, Jewish tradition tends to regard the giving of the law at Sinai to be the goal of the entire redemptive process, a sort of return from exile to the full stature of God's chosen people. Some of the sages have taken a step further by saying that God created the universe so that Israel would accept the Torah or the law. Such traditions, it should be understood, derive more from Jewish rabbinical thinking codified after the destruction of the Second Temple than from the narratives presented in the written Torah itself, since it's clear that the climax of the revelation at Sinai was to impart the pattern of the Mishkan to Moses, as I've said over and over again. In other words, the goal of revelation was not primarily to impart a set of moral laws or social laws, but rather to accommodate the divine presence in the midst or the hearts of the people. This is not to suggest that the various laws and decrees given to Israel are unimportant, of course, since they reflect the holy character and moral will of God. Nonetheless, it's without question that the Torah was revealed concurrently with the revelation of the sanctuary itself, and the two cannot be separated apart from one another without special pleading and the suppression of the revelation given in the Torah itself. The meticulous account of the Mishkan is given twice in the Torah to emphasize its importance to God. This further explains why Leviticus is the central book of the Torah. As we consider these things, however, it's vital to realize that underlying the events surrounding deliverance and revelation is even something more fundamental, namely the great theme of faith, or amina. This theme is our response to God's redemptive love. God's love is the question, and our response, our teshuva, is the answer. The great commandment is always to choose life. We must choose to turn away from darkness to behold the light. Jewish tradition states that there were many Jews who perished in Egypt during the plague of darkness because they refused to believe in God's love. Likewise, the revelation at Sinai failed to transform the hearts of many Jews because they despaired of finding hope. As glorious as the redemption and revelation was, then there was something even more foundational that gave inward life to God's gracious intervention. You must first believe that God loves you and regards you as worthy of his love. You must accept that you are accepted. It's your faith that brings you near. This is the Cinderella story of Exodus. The themes of Exodus will mean little to you unless you identify with the journey of the people, and that implies that you reckon yourself as worth saving. Incidentally, I believe this is part of the impetus that leads many Christian people who first become enamored with the Jewish roots to look and seek for some sort of Jewish identity in their hearts, some sort of Jewish lineage, some DNA thing or heritage that they have hidden in their past. All of that's irrelevant, as Paul said. He thought his whole zechut, or his lineage as a Benjamite, a Hebrew of Hebrews, was worth nothing compared to the personal connection with the Lord through Yeshua. Moreover, consider Father Abraham, Abraham Avinu, and his faith, and how that made him right before God, as clearly stated in Torah. So you see, Abraham, who was a Gentile, became right with God by faith, and that is a miracle. Faith is the sufficient condition for all that you receive in the truth of Messiah. It is the spiritual blessing of God. Read Romans chapter 2 about what a true Jew is, how a true Jew is one whose heart has been circumcised by the Spirit of God inwardly. So again, you must see yourself as a recipient of God's affection and love. After all, without this as a first step, how will you make the rest of the journey? This is very similar to the first commandment revealed at Sinai. Anochi Adonai Lehecha, I am the Lord your God. Notice that this statement, Anochi Adonai Lehecha, was uttered in the second person singular rather than the plural. In other words, you personally must be willing to accept the Lord into your heart, since the rest of the Torah is merely commentary to this first step of faith. Therefore, the book of Exodus is called Shemot, names, because it sees 
Every person is worthy of God's redemption and revelation. For God so loved the world, as it says in John 3.16. Those who directly experienced God's deliverance in Egypt, first of all, believed that they were redeemable people. Before anything else, they made a decision to receive hope within their hearts. The blood of the original Passover was a sign of faith. We must begin here. This is the start of the journey. We step out by faith, leaving behind the familiar, including the familiarity of our sin and shame, and venture out into the unknown. We venture out in hope because we trust in the love and promises of God. It's our hope that makes us the beloved. The journey of faith is marked with testing, of course. Being called out of the world leads you into desert places. Faith is not something static like a church creed or theology handbook. There are stony places, dangers, and difficulties that attend the way. We move out from walled cities into tents, traveling as strangers and sojourners on our way to the promised heavenly city. Therefore, the scriptures say that by faith Abraham went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs of him of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. That's from Hebrews 11, 9, and 10. The way back home is the same for all who cross over from this world to the next. It's the way of hope, trust, and surrender. Crossing over like that makes you a true Hebrew. The story of Exodus is not the story for other people. You must choose to belong. Your faith draws you near. That's why the sages teach, Behold, door of a door, and each and every generation an individual should look upon himself or herself as if he or she personally had left Egypt. It's not enough to recall in some abstract sense the deliverance of the Jewish people in ancient Egypt, but each Jew is responsible to personally view the Passover as a time to commemorate their own personal deliverance from the bondage of Pharaoh. The same must be said regarding Shavuot. Each person should regard himself as having personally received revelation at Sinai. The altar of the Mishkan was set up for you to draw near to God. You, not some people who lived long ago. That's why non-Jews who turn to the God of Israel by putting their trust in the Messiah are regarded as equal members in the covenants and covenant promises given to ethnic Israel. It's Brit Milah, literally a covenant of the word that makes us partakers of the covenantal blessings given to Abraham. Look at Ephesians 2, 12, 19, and Galatians 3, 7, and Colossians 2, 11, and so on. We draw near, and in our case, it's the cross, which is the substance of the shadows of the Mishkan and the altars and the pattern that is implied therein. It's the substance of all that is ultimately real. Yeshua is the beginning and end of all true Torah. The narratives of the book of Exodus, like other narratives of Torah, often function as parables for us, as it's written in the New Testament. Now, these things happen to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. That's 1 Corinthians 10, 11. Moreover, it's written this way, the deeds of the fathers are signs for the children. Signs of what? Of the coming of Messiah, of Yeshua himself. The Mishkan itself is a metaphor of God's redemption given in Yeshua. The mercy seat represents the throne of God, where propitiation for our sins was made. Look at Romans 3.25. Indeed, the word Mishkan is related to the word Mishken, which means collateral on a loan. The tabernacle functioned as a loan to Israel until the Messiah came to establish the true temple by means of his atoning sacrifice. That's a temple made without hands. The law is called a schoolmaster, meant to lead us to Messiah and his kingdom rule. Look at Galatians 3, 23-26. The glory of the Torah of Moses was destined to fade away, as it says in 2 Corinthians 3, 3-11, just as its ritual center, the tabernacle or temple, was a shadow of Skia, to be replaced by the greater priesthood of Melchizedek, who is the prefigurement or pre-incarnate presence of Yeshua. Look at Hebrews 10, 1 and 13, 10. Now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we may serve in a new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written law code. Look at Romans 7, 6. Yeshua is the goal, and the goel, the redeemer, from the curse of the law. For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, and that is how we draw near to God, it says in Hebrews seven nineteen, When the veil is taken away, Yeshua appears on every page of Scripture. For more on this, see Why Then the Law and Paul's Midrash of the Veil on the Hebrew for Christians website. Outside of the Mishkan, beyond the outer court, are the raw, natural experiences of life. 
This is the realm of the carnal flesh and the dust to dust, ashes to ashes, the spirit of Olam Haze, or life in this world. Spiritual life is found when you come in through the gate. You must understand that the gate is there for you to pass through. The cross of Yeshua is the altar where he died for you personally, for your atonement with the Father. His blood was presented between the outstretched wings of the cherubim so that you could come before God Panim el Panim, that is personally as a man speaks to his friend. Your faith bridges the gap between the Holy of Holies of the cross and the sanctuary of your heart. I sincerely pray that you open your heart to the Lord now. Chazak, chazak, benit chazak, be strong, be strong, and may we be strengthened, Chavrim. And let me end with the great Hebrew blessing. Yevarechecha Hashem Yavishmarecha, Ya'er Adonai Panav Elecha Vikuneka, May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his shalom, his healing love. Hashem Yeshua, Meshichenu, Huhadon, in the name of Jesus our Messiah, he is the Lord. Shavuot Tov, Chodesh Tov, every blessing in Messiah, be it on you, by faith, receive it now. Amen. For more information, visit us at www.hebrewforchristians.com or Google Learn Hebrew Free.